quicker to go in terms of a sermon today and had some thoughts uh, in addition to where we have been going. But in comparing the context of the Psalms where we are right now, it seems so very much alive and real and timely for today. I think we're going to continue there. Uh, Someone pointed out a very interesting scripture to me about a week or so ago. And when we get to Psalm 87, if I remember, I'll, uh, I'll try to include that because I think it's very timely and a very good uh, proof of some of the things that we've been learning. So maybe I can keep you awake till then uh, as we start into this. But the context is very much uh, where we are in the church today with the destruction and splintering and splitting and all of the things that are going on. Uh, and our emotional plight, and I've mentioned these things several times over the last several weeks, so I won't go into that more, but you'll see that as we go through here. So let's go to Psalm 84 uh, with the thought from 83, the ending verse, that the whole earth is going to know that God is God. Now that echoes, oh, down about halfway through Isaiah 45, where he says he will use the buried treasures and hidden things to show that He is God from the east to the west. So God is going to very shortly now rise up and do His strange work, His magnificent work, His awesome work, and show the world that He is God. And they're not going to like it, and the death threats will increase. Uh, You can... Well imagine that that will be the case for anyone who sticks to the true God because he will not be popular at all at that time. Anyway, with that thought then, we go to Psalm 84. He says, how amiable or how pleasant might be another word to put in there are your tabernacles, O eternal of hosts. So the world is in chaos. They are going to be shown through some mighty and horrific events that God is God. Without question, He controls everything, and He will show things that are beyond man's control, which will prove who He is. And there are great historical things that are going to come up that will prove it as well. And the things that need to be restored here in the end are not just doctrinal. The true history the true promised land, the truth of many things that have been completely lost to mankind are going to be shown. And some of the buried and hidden things are not just gold and silver treasures or temple vessels. I believe they will include records and maps and perhaps original texts of some of the Scriptures to prove that indeed the Bible is true and that everything that is true historically, will fit that picture. The tabernacles of God are going to be revealed. Not just that which is in heaven, but that which is on earth. His dwelling place, he'll talk about it a little bit later. That's what a tabernacle is. We have Feast of Tabernacles or temporary dwellings, not permanent. My soul longs, yea, even faints, for the courts of the eternal. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. 
we know the latter temple is going to be built, as per Haggai and many other scriptures. Ezekiel 40 through 48, if you will. And our hearts are longing for those things. We want to see the mystery of God completed. We want to see history restored and the temple rebuilt and Jerusalem built and all these things culminating in the return of Christ. So our hearts and our flesh cry out to see these things happen. You know, Marla and I were talking a little last night and this morning about, you know, none of us are going to give up. People in the church have kind of given up, but I think with the knowledge we have, we're not going to give up. We might get weary, we might get tired, we might get emotionally drained, we might get frustrated. And those are the things that make us cry out to God because He's the only one who has any answers for these maladies that so easily beset us. So, we cry out for God's answer to come. Knowing that we have nowhere else to go, do we? When you understand and know the things that we know, you can't just throw them away and walk away. You know they have to happen because the Scripture is full of them. So it becomes difficult. We know we have to stick it out. We have to see it through. And however difficult that may be, that is the only logical course that we can follow. So we cry out, Yes, the sparrow has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O eternal of hosts, my King and my God. I think the thought here is that the sparrow can find a place to nest, but your people are still having difficulties and troubles and trials. And didn't Christ himself say that the birds and the foxes and so on found places, but he had no place? Now, we can see from other scriptures that he had a house. It is plainly stated in scripture that he went into his house. So what did he mean? He meant that there was nothing permanent for him that he longed for the tabernacles of God to return to his Father, to finish the course, to finish the plan of salvation, and to come dwell and dwell permanently in the new Jerusalem here on the earth at the beginning of the millennium. So he had no permanent resting place. Yeah, he had a house. He did have, temporarily, a place to lay down. He did camp out a lot, yes. Slept with the disciples out in the wilderness or wherever. But it is not a contradiction in Scripture. It's simply a matter of, oh yeah, sure, if you ask me, yeah, I do have a physical house over there, but that's not where I want to lay my head permanently. Aren't we the same? We have places to lay down here, but yet we're still ambassadors and pilgrims, and we're seeking a different country, a better country, and even a better place here when God begins to protect and guide, and bless, and lead in the way that He promises He will. So, we're like the sparrows and the swallows who don't have a permanent resting place or nesting place. Little physical birds do, but we don't. Blessed are they that dwell in your house. They will be still praising you. So, it's something that will become permanent. Once we are in the house of God, and we are today... 
the house of God ourselves. Our bodies are the temple of God. And any physical manifestation of a temple is inferior to and not as important as God dwelling in us and Christ living his life through us. That's the highest and spiritual form. So if a physical temple is built and even physical sacrifices are instituted for an example to the world, that is on a lower level than Christ dwelling in you and me. That's the highest form of God's temple that we could know here on the earth at this time. So we are in the house of God, aren't we? And we're blessed and we're going to stay in it. And we will continue praising Him, even though all these things are going to come on the world to prove who God is. Uh, they will be in your house praising you. That's a good one to think about. That word Selah is put in there. Ponder, think, uh, several times through the Psalms. I've, I've noted it many times already. And then he continues the thought. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. I think we reviewed that somewhat last night, even in the Passover service. That of ourselves, we can do nothing. We have no strength, no power, no might, no majesty, no nothing. Without God's Spirit and His help and strength that we have to call on to receive. So blessed is the man whose strength is in God. In in whose heart are the ways of them. So we're trying to inculcate God's ways into our hearts and minds. It's not a natural fit. There have to be modifications made for that to happen because our minds will go other places so very easily. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. Uh, my margin talks about a place where mumbleberry trees can, can grow. Mumbleberry. Where did I get that? Uh, <laughs> Uh, what, what was the, what does it say in there? If I can still, mulberries. I used to climb in mulberry trees when I was a kid. They grew around where there was more water. Uh, they're not a desert plant necessarily, or certainly not completely. But the valley of mulberries make it a well. The rain also fills the pools, or covers the pools. It says in the Hebrew. So uh, where God is. There will then ultimately be rain and prosperity because God will bless. And rain is a symbol of blessing, especially out here in a dry and desert and wilderness land. Uh, somebody says, well, this really does look like a wilderness. And I says, well, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it blossoms and blooms in some places every year. It's no big deal because there are areas where there is a lot of rain. But if, the, if you're going to be where the desert blossoms as a rose, you have to be in a place where it normally doesn't. So God will cause those miracles to occur in a dry and barren land, and then it will show His majesty. Not just that, well, it's springtime, so everything blooms now. That isn't automatic out here by any means. Now this, then, is the perfect place for us to be, for God to show His hand, and that He can make it bloom as a rose. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appears before God. So what little strength we have, we find greater strength in God, and 
we appear in Zion before God. Isn't it nice, after 2,000 years, I believe, of not even knowing where the promised land truly was and is, not even knowing where Jerusalem originated, where the Garden of Eden was, isn't it nice to know where God has placed His name? The true promised land with the true Zion and the true Jerusalem. That is one of the major things that has to be restored here at the end, and it is going to be a shock to the world at the time that it can be proved. I would not want to be anywhere else today than right here. And people have traveled long distances to be here because it is the place God has placed His name and that's where He wants us to be, if at all possible. We appear in Zion before God. I don't know where Zion begins and ends. I know where the government puts the line as far as the national park, but I think it covers this whole area, actually, and the hidden places of the stairs, the... uh, National Monument out here, and so on. But that's a, a bigger story for a different time. But how many people can fulfill that one verse and know where the true Zion is and be there at God's holy days as he's commanded? O eternal God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. One of our deepest thoughts. So again, he says, Selah. This is something to think about as to getting God to hear us. Be cold, O God, our shield. Reminds me of Zechariah 2. He is going to become a wall of fire or protection around and a covert from the desert heat. He's going to make conditions Edenic here before long. So he will be our shield from all these troubles that are about to come on the world that are mentioned there in verse 18 of chapter 83 and other places. And look upon the face of your anointed. That has to be church members. Can't be anybody else, can it? For a day in your courts is better than a thousand other days. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Just being in God's kingdom is going to be an incredible blessing, even if you don't have great glory and honor or or just a doorkeeper, as he says here. It's not that I think any of us will be doorkeepers, uh, because he says we'll be kings and priests in the millennium, uh, in the kingdom of God, and we'll rule the earth. That doesn't sound like doorkeepers. But the point is being made here that the lowest position in God's kingdom is better than the fanciest places on earth among people who are ungodly. And we have to dwell here with the ungodly and try to be godly ourselves even under those conditions and it doesn't come easy. For the eternal God is a sun and shield. The eternal will give grace and And glory. So pardon we don't deserve. Unmerited pardon is grace. And he will give glory as well. We're here to come to have the glory of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, 1 Corinthians 15.50. Some of those scriptures talk about us being glorified in this mortal putting in of mortality when Christ returns as symbolized by the Feast of Trumpets and the blowing of trumpets. 
No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Speaking of the grace and glory and and God glorifying us, I was struck last night. I did not know the historical uh, background. I knew that George Frederick Handel wrote The Messiah in about two weeks. But he only wrote the musical score. And I thought, I had been thinking, this whole Messiah... Uh, body of music reflects the plan of God. The scriptures and the way the music is all put together show the plan of God and in such a way the Protestants don't have a clue about. They would not have any idea how to put those scriptures together in the order that they are in that music because they have no understanding of it. And yet George Frederick Handel was, as I understand, a Methodist. But he is not the one who wrote the music. I mean, he wrote the music, the notes, but he didn't put the the lyrics to it, the words. Somebody else collaborated and did that. And they don't know for sure who it was. That is what I found interesting. That somebody who understood the plan of God had to have put those scriptures together in the order they come in the Messiah. And I do believe that God inspired that and caused that story to be brought through several hundred years until today, and we can look back. I had always thought that Handel had put the words to it. I did not know that bit of history. I found it quite... Exciting to find that out because I thought, how did a Methodist know how to put those scriptures together? He didn't. Somebody else did it. And it might have been someone who understood the plan of God. I find that quite interesting. End of verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Didn't Christ say, if we will seek Him with our whole hearts, and whatever we ask, we will receive, there in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, He quoted it from right here. There are so many, many, many quotes in the New Testament from the Old. Maybe not an exact quote, but the the thought is still certainly the same. I find it very interesting that even here in the Old Testament, and I saw one in the Psalms, maybe we'll run across it, I'm not sure exactly where I read it now last night, but... Uh, even when they were writing the Psalms, they were referring back to Scripture that had been written prior to that. So then in the New Testament, Christ and the Apostles all referred back to all the Scriptures from Genesis through the Old Testament up until that time. So the Scriptures are used all the way back to Genesis continually, even through to the end of the book of Revelation. God has made a continuity here. So it should come, really, is no surprise to us that we can get into the Psalms, and as you and I have seen, anywhere we go in the Bible, we see this story that you and I are experiencing today here in the end repeated over and over and over again. It's not new. It's just written from a little different perspective, written maybe a thousand, two thousand years from the time another part of Scripture was written. But God's inspiration is so clearly there that the story is the same 
whether Moses wrote it or David wrote it or John the Apostle wrote it. It's the same. So he will not withhold from them that walk uprightly. So the key to getting this turned around is for us to walk uprightly, and then he will begin to turn his face and answer us again in more positive and more adamant and spectacular ways. Psalm 85, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now, he did that by bringing us back to this land from Western Europe, essentially, and opening up the promised land again to us after we had been taken out of it for thousands of years. We were allowed to return. Now we have turned from God again and polluted this great and wonderful land that had everything we could possibly need in it. We've ruined it. And we've ruined the culture and it is a godless nation today. He started turning that captivity with establishment of the church in the end time through Herbert Armstrong. That's when it began to really grow. There were a few Sabbath keepers and people who kept the holy days that Herbert Armstrong got affiliated with, but nothing began to truly happen (coughs) until God raised him up to begin to truly spread it and to develop it and do something with it here in this land. (coughs) So things began to be favorable. And then we began to take it for granted. And now he has scattered us, and now he is about to scatter the nation as well. So that same story is here. He brought back the captivity of Jacob, began to reveal truth to us. Now we have to be scattered. Our nation has to be scattered. And then we will be used in the millennium to bring it back once again. But he has already started, has he not, restoring it through the knowledge that we've come to see. Even in this scattering and mess, God has began to show us some things. He hasn't intervened in the spectacular ways that we see in Scripture yet, but he's shown us what is going to happen. So that is a start. So even though the church has dipped and done what he said would happen, And the nation is about to go there. Even as the nation is going down, we are beginning to rise in terms of knowledge of what is happening and have a heads up on what we need to do to be sure that this happens. What an incredible blessing that is. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Think about that one. Well, this is a good time to think about that one. We just got done with the Passover service. This is the first day of unleavened bread. And we sit here today, having last night gone through the formality of Christ's blood covering all our sin once again. Of course, it's a continual sacrifice, and we pray through the year for forgiveness. And He gives it. But still in all, this gives us a clean and fresh start And everything is put behind. So it fits very well with Psalm 85. You have taken away all your wrath. Now he does say that when we turn to him, he'll remove all our 
sins as a cloud in one day, Isaiah 45, says it's going to be done very quickly. He will suddenly come to his temple, as Malachi 3 or verse chapter 4 says. It's going to be very quick when he turns his face back and begins to smile on his people. And takes away his wrath. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. This I expect to see very shortly. Uh, by what do you mean by very shortly? Does that mean today or tomorrow? I don't know. It might be a year or two, but it isn't very far off. Because we see the way things are progressing in the world. Or how it's coming apart and how they're trying to put it together in a new world order. As they destroy the old. So it can't be too far away. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. This is right exactly where we are in time today. We have been through the storm, and we are waiting now for God to turn His face and cause His anger to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? We've read these very same words just a few chapters back. Will you draw out your anger to all generations? It just seems like we've been living in this now year after year after year. And it just gets worse and worse. And we get frustrated. And these are the words of frustration right here. It just seems like this is going to go on this way forevermore. And yet God says it won't. Will you not revive us again? Has it gone to the place we're just going to all get sick and old and die? Or will you revive us again? These are questions that go through our minds that we grapple with and try to walk by faith because that's the way the just will walk. But it can get frustrating and seem like it's far off, like it'll never end. Don't you feel that way? I find myself grappling with those emotions and feelings at times. I'm sure you do as well, because it's not so much that we have physical problems yet in terms of something to eat or a place to sleep or difficulties of that nature. It's the emotional pressure that is so heavy of trying to be what we're supposed to be in a world that isn't what it's supposed to be. And trying to be like God when we're not by nature whatsoever. So it's, it's not physical yet. It's mental, emotional, and spiritual. That's where the battle lies. And that's what he's dealing with here in these scriptures. How do I handle the frustration of God not blessing us the way we want him to? Of course, the other side is we're not acting like he wants us to. And that holds it back. It's not his fault. He said, I will turn when you turn to me, wholeheartedly. We've read that how many times? It's easy, though, if you allow it to begin to have an attitude about God. Well, why won't he do something? We can get a little angry with him. Like Habakkuk got frustrated when he said, how long, O Lord? Then he corrected himself and said, I guess I better shut up and just sit on my watch till it happens. Uh, because he knew if he got in a bad attitude toward God, uh, things could go really bad, or badly, to use the correct grammar. Show us mercy, 
O Eternal, and grant us your salvation. So this is speaking to converted people, talking about salvation. I will hear what God the Eternal will speak. I have my frustrations, but I better listen to God, he says. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but that let them not turn again to folly. He wants us to straighten up and stay that way. Surely his salvation is near them that fear him. That glory, or that glory may dwell in our land. So he is willing when the time is right, to turn, to bless us, and have glory dwell in our land. Well, where are his people? The vast majority of the church was in the United States. The vast majority. So, where are his people in time? Most of them are right here in this country. A few here and there in other countries but the vast majority here. Do you think for a moment that it is logical that God would do an end-time work, would raise up anyone except in the promised land, the land of Israel? Would you think for a moment it would occur in China? Or Taiwan? Would you think for a moment it would happen in Saudi Arabia? How about since 1948 that place called Israel where there are no converted people of God except unless a few may have moved over there in the last few years thinking that's the place to go. But God raised up no work whatsoever there. Shouldn't that say something, even without having to go into all the historical and geological reasons? Shouldn't it speak very eloquently where God is working? Because he said he would work with Abraham's seed in the place where he walked. I beat that drum quite a bit when we come to it here. And I'll probably beat it some more, because this is one of the most astounding truths that can possibly be revealed here at the end. The right location. What do they say in real estate? Location, location, location. You've got to be in the right spot. Well, in the end time, it is going to be very important to be in the right spot. Guaranteed. And you can't find Petra is the right spot in this book. You might find it in Adam Clark's commentary or somewhere, but not in this book. Zion is the place. All right, verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So finally... God's mercy is going to come upon the people of truth and be joined together. And the righteousness that comes from the truth and God's merciful forgiveness is going to lead to righteousness, which creates peace. 
Now, if we look at ourselves and complain there is not enough peace or enough love among us, then I can guarantee you that there is not enough righteousness among us. Because righteousness and peace meet because one produces the other. It's easy to complain, but complaining accomplishes nothing unless we do something about it, you see. And in God's gathering of His remnant to build His holy temple, which will be better than what was under Herbert Armstrong in the former temple, there has to be peace. Does he not say in Haggai, is it 2-9, wherever it is, in this place will I bring peace. That means that righteousness has to exist in order for peace to occur. You don't just receive peace, you make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who don't complain about fighting and war and backstabbing, but those who actually make peace. So complain all you want, and you'll accomplish absolutely zilch. If you've got a complaint, fix it. Make peace where it does not exist by being yourself righteous. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Eternal shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase, both physically and spiritually. Righteousness shall go before Him, and shall set us in the way of His steps. Christ is going to have to restore a lot, isn't He? How much righteousness do we generate on our own? We read that last night. Again, of myself I can do nothing. We have to turn to God, receive the Holy Spirit, and it says there in John that it will give us help and strength and comfort. Chapter 86. Bow down your ear, O Eternal. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Well, now that is the attitude you have to be in if you expect God to bow his ear or tip his head and turn his ear to you. That's what Christ began the Sermon on the Mount with, was those who are poor in spirit and have need of God. So, we find ourselves praying this, please hear us, O God. Well, if we have knowledge and understanding of what we lack then we can come with this attitude. Remember the story of the Pharisee, I guess it was, or was it the Sadducee, I don't remember for sure, who stood and bragged about all of everything and lifted his hands and his face to God. And then there was the poor Samaritan, I guess it was, who was over there and wouldn't lift his face and says, forgive me, a sinner. I think I mentioned that in the prayer last night. That's the attitude we need to have. Who do we think we are? <laughs> after what God has put the church through, after what He's done to us personally, after He scattered us and vomited us out, how can we rise up in ego and vanity and say, we're the church of the very elect? 
It just doesn't fit at all, does it? We have to bow our head and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's where we need to be right now. Bow, bow down your ear, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul. <laughs> Don't let me flush out. Don't let me die. Don't let me quit. Preserve me. Help me. For I am holy, or sanctified, or set apart. Look, God, you know, you set us apart. You sanctified us. You reconciled us. You brought us here. You forgave our sins. Our Savior died for us. So preserve us, for we are holy. We are His holy people. Whether we always act like it or not, He has set us aside to be holy. O you, my God, save your servant that trusts in you. Doesn't He say that without faith it is impossible to please Him? Trust and faith are essentially the same thing. He will save those who walk by faith. Be merciful to me, O Eternal, for I cry to you, my margin says, all day, all the day. In the Hebrew, not just daily, not once a day, but all day long. My thought and my feeling and my emotion and my action as I go through life is, <laughs> without you I'm nothing. I have to have God with me. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for unto you, O Eternal, do I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. That's his attitude, his approach, his desire. He's always ready to forgive. We have sometimes, I think, more trouble forgiving ourselves than he does in forgiving us. And we can even have a certain amount of self-righteousness involved in that, and he's plenteous in mercy to all them that call upon him. That's why when we get to Psalm 119, it says all the way through, I think it's 176 verses, his mercy endures forever. It says it in every verse. Is he trying to get something across there? Uh, we won't go there. We'll be to it eventually. But it's always there. He's ready to give it. Give ear, O Eternal, to my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. We sing this one in, uh, in our hymn book. In the day of my trouble I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like to you, O Eternal, neither are there any works like your works. So even though we have our frustrations in the previous chapter, uh, then you turn it around and you begin to pray a prayer like this. I know I'm nothing. I know I need you. Please help me, for there's no God like you are. So, that's how we get out of our spiritual funk, is to begin to concentrate on God and what He can do and is able to do and has done and stop, stop worrying about how poor and pitiful and uh, I am and how great He is. Because that's how we begin to... To serve God. Verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Eternal, and shall glorify your name. That's not going to happen until the millennium, until Christ is here and the Father dwelling in the new Jerusalem. And then they'll either come up to keep the feast or the rain will stop. So this is definitely uh, prophetic. There's nothing that is going to make that happen until... 
most of the population of the earth is destroyed. And people will be humbled, and then they will feel poor and needy. They'll turn to God, and then they'll come and worship. Not going to happen until then, and that isn't very far off. We are indeed in the end times. For you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. There's only one. Teach me your way, O Eternal. I will walk in your truth. Well, that, that goes hand in glove there. If there's only one true God, then that's the best way to go is His way. Why go any other way if there's only one God? And yet we have a world that worships all kinds of other gods that don't really even exist. Or like Satan, who has put himself in the place of God, but he really isn't, is he? And yet people go his way. So if there's only one true God, then let's go that way. Teach me your way, O Eternal. I will walk in your truth. What does the truth do? It sets you free. Free from what? Pain, misery, selfishness. Problems. Now, following him right now is going to cause troubles and tribulation and affliction. But it leads to the removal of all trouble. Verse 12, I will praise you, eternal my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. Eternal life. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the lowest grave. Even if we do go to the grave, we'll be resurrected from it and saved from it. O God, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul, and have not set you before them. So he compares then what we have compared to the world out there. We may not be what we ought to be completely yet, but at least we have knowledge of God's way, and we have an opportunity to follow it. But you, O Eternal, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. We have to remind ourselves of that. Because when we sin and we make mistakes and we have wrong thoughts and we get in dejected, uh, frustrated attitudes, it's easy to get in a pity party and feel sorry for ourselves and all those emotions that come with negativity. And we need to be reminded that God is more compassionate and merciful and giving and loving than we are. And sometimes we get down on each other and frustrated with one another. But God isn't going to be near as hard on His people as we sometimes are on His people. We need to become more like God and have His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His tolerance, His patience and long-suffering instead of getting upset, frustrated, angry over each other. That is not where we need to be. I have found that those who complain the most about how things are not going well and we have problems are the ones that are doing the majority of the complaining and ranting and raving and worrying about the conduct of others. That's just a fact. We all need to come to have God's attitude of verse 15. 
O turn to me and have mercy upon me. Give your strength to your servant that save the son of your handmaid. Show me a token for good. It's not wrong to ask that God give us encouragement, to give us things that help make us feel a little better and like it's worth going on. Hope, in other words, a token for good. Give us hope that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed. It's always easy to put someone else down and see their error and not see our own attitude. That's one of the biggest problems. Is it's so easy to see somebody else's problem or what is you think a problem and may not even be in some cases. But it's so hard to see our own, to see our own attitudes and our own self-righteousness. Let's see the things of God and be ashamed of ourselves because you eternal have helped me and comforted me. Well, if God is willing to comfort and help us, then we should be willing to comfort and help one another, shouldn't we? That's what we're here to do is encourage and strengthen and sharpen each other. Uh, Sometimes we take that term iron sharpening iron to mean that we ought to get an axe and chop somebody up. Uh, No, we should be sharp instruments spiritually to do God's work. And we need to help each other become sharp spiritually, not dull. So don't think when you need to sharpen somebody else up, it's to use an axe on them. No, help them become spiritually sharper so that the time and energy we put forth is more valuable. I have used both a sharp and a dull axe on trees or chainsaw either one. And I'll tell you, it is a whole lot better and you get a whole lot more done if the instrument is sharp. You can beat on something for a long, long time. I saw a documentary way back in the 60s called The Sky Above and the Mud Below. And it was a comparison of our modern civilization with, uh, I think that one was set in New Guinea. And the natives there in New Guinea were trying to chop down a tree with a stick. And or a stone, I guess, maybe it was. Either, either way, didn't work very well. And they, they were beating on the bottom of this little tree to try to get it to fall. So they could use it for whatever, on their thatch roof or whatever might have been the case. But they're beating and beating and beating. They're going to beat that tree down. So along comes a modern man with TV camera behind, picks up an axe and cuts the tree down with one stroke of the axe. And the native fellow looked at the tree, and he looked at the axe, and he picked up his rock or club and started beating on the next tree. He didn't become sharper. <laughs> he didn't learn. He saw what happened, but it just wouldn't quite calculate. wouldn't come through. Well, we're here to help each other learn. And by your experience, my experience, putting it together and talking about these things... Maybe it would help us become what we're supposed to be rather than decrying what we aren't, which is what some tend to focus on. And about everything they talk about is negative. Well, so-and-so did this, and -and so-and-so did that, and -and so-and-so has this attitude. Why do I need to know that? 
Why not talk about something positive and look at things from a positive standpoint? There's the same amount of water in the glass whether you look at it as half empty or half full. So why not look at it as half full and help fill it up instead of trying to convince everybody it's half empty? You know, it's a matter of changing our whole way of thinking sometimes because it is ungodly and we need to look at the positive. It's always there and you can ignore it and find the negative and you can complain from now on. It won't do a bit of good, will it? Just make things worse. So let's be positive in our approach. God is. He speaks of the things that aren't as if they already are, doesn't he? And says so. He is full of compassion and mercy and love and patience. Then if we're going to be like God, we have to be the same way. Chapter 87, his foundation is in the holy mountains. Where are the holy mountains? Where is the foundation of the church of God today? Where are the holy mountains? Where is our foundation? Where does it lie? Of course, Christ is the chief cornerstone. But you have to build a church somewhere. Now, God is not so shallow that he will go to some Gentile country around the world somewhere and establish a physical foundation for his work, which is a physical thing, people in buildings doing things has to occur. Yes, there is the spiritual side. The God has to dwell in us, and we have to be the temple of His Spirit, but still there is a physical work that has to be done. Where did He start it? To get back to that question. Where is the foundation? The former temple under Herbert Armstrong had its foundation in the southwestern United States. And it grew from there to cover the land, as Ezekiel 16 shows. And the foundation of the latter temple has to be in the same area, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He will begin a early, middle, and late work in the same place that He established from the beginning. He is that way. Wherever the Garden of Eden was, was the place God intended to work from. And He is going to return there with the new and heavenly Jerusalem, us, and set up His government from the same spot. That will not change. It never has. Therefore, wherever the end time temple of God, church of God, begins and works from, is the original place that God worked from in the beginning. It has to be. How could it be anything else? So then where is it? His foundation is in the holy mountains. His holy hill, Mount Zion, the hills of Judah, the mountains of Ephraim. The Eternal loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now, Jacob is spread out right now over quite a few different countries. 
But the leadership of Jacob, of Israel, is Ephraim. And it is concentrated in basically one country. And Zion is within it. And he loves it more than all the other places. So where is Zion? Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. God placed his name first in Shiloh, but he originally intended that it be Jerusalem and Zion. He did it temporary in Shiloh, and I think that is because he knew people would rebel soon after coming into the promised land. They would abandon him, and then he could depart from Shiloh. But he would set up his government through David in the original area of Jerusalem where he sent Abraham. The city of God. He says, think about that one. I will make mention of Rahab, that's Mitzrayim, go to chapter 89, verse 10 to prove that, <coughs> and Babylon to them that know me. It says, to the people of God, to the ones that do know me, I'm going to make mention of Mitzrayim and Babylon. I will say, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this man was born there. Now, that's quite interesting, because when Abraham got to the original promised land that God gave to him and said he would give to his uh, seed forever, who was there? The people of Mitzrayim, the people of Philistia, of Ethiopia, the people of Ham were there. Hivites, Hittites, all those tribes mentioned as Hamitic in Genesis 10 were there. Now, God says, I'm going to mention those places, and he mentions it in talking about the holy mountains and the gates of Zion. So when Abraham got there, those tribes were there. When Joshua got them to the promised land, those tribes were there. So this man was born there. It may have been inhabited by some Gentile peoples at that time, but it was the original promised land. And he says, this is the place I'm going to look to as the important place of birth. You say you were born in Bangkok. You say you were born in uh, Timbuktu. Okay, fine. But if you're going to be born anywhere, it would be nice to be born where God has placed his name. That's the point here. And of Zion, see, he mentions the foundation, the holy city, the city of God. And of Zion, it shall be said, this and that man was born in her. And the highest himself shall establish her. So when God begins to establish things, even here in the end time, that's where it's going to be. I challenge you to go to the Middle East and find the church of God. It isn't there. And the archaeologists tell us that there is no evidence whatsoever of Hamitic peoples ever having dwelt in that land. It just isn't there. And yet the scripture is very clear that those were the people that were there in the days of Abraham and in the days of Joshua and Caleb. So what is the answer? 
That's the wrong spot. Now, I promised, and I didn't forget for once. Let's go to Acts 7. Uh, one of you brought this up recently to me, and I had not seen it or thought about it. I had wondered about this kind of proof, but uh, I find this very, very interesting. Here in Acts 7, as you know, Stephen was ordained uh, in chapter 6 and began to preach, and God used him with great power. Even though he was but a deacon, uh, God can use whomsoever he chooses. And this was one of them. Now, these people who were listening to Stephen preach, let's go back to chapter 6 for a moment. Uh, speaking of Christ, they said, For we have heard him say, or I guess speaking of Stephen here, we've heard Stephen say, that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Now, he did indeed change many things, raise them to a spiritual level. And he had told the disciples there in Matthew 24 that of the temple of God there would not be one stone left upon another. Now, we can read many scriptures, which we've seen lately in the prophecies, showing that Jerusalem and the cities of Judah would be laid waste and would be desolate for many generations, for a long, long period of time. So the implication here is perhaps not only the temple or a synagogue where they were meeting at this point, but Jerusalem itself, because that's where they were. Now let's go down to chapter 7 and see some very interesting things. Then said the high priest, speaking to Stephen, Are these things so? Have you said these things? And Stephen said, Men, brethren, and fathers, listen. I'll answer the question. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charan, it says in this context in the Greek, uh, Old Testament in the Hebrew is Haran, or I think very clearly Iran. And I think that this lends credence to what Ruth came up with uh, as a thought, that this was the original promised land. The Garden of Eden was very near here. Zion and Jerusalem were. And when the flood occurred, Adam's boat floated to the mountains of Ararat, and when the waters subsided, Noah and his family moved down into the land of Mesopotamia, which is what history today calls the cradle of civilization. Now, I do think civilization began again there, far removed from the original. It was here. Now, the continents may have been together at that time, but still, there is a vast distance in terms of land only, if not the great Euphrates, the Atlantic, in between. So, he says clearly that Abraham was in Mesopotamia, and that's where all the great civilizations and empires that we have record of were. That's where they are digging up the artifacts 
of archaeology in that area. So he was in Mesopotamia, then he went to Iran, or Haran, or Charan as it says here, and from there he left and went to the promised land, as Stephen will say. So, he says, and said to him, verse 3, Get you out of your country, and from your kindred, and come into the land which I shall show you. So Abraham was told to get clear out of Mesopotamia, out of Iran, and go to a different place that God would show. (coughs) Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Iran. So he came out of Mesopotamia, went to Iran, and from there, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. Now think about that. If Abraham left that area and came to the promised land, which when he got there, God said, I'll give you this land and your seed forever. And your seed will dwell in it. Now they may be taken captive and taken out, but they will return to it. It's theirs. Now what this is telling me, is that when Stephen gave this sermon, he was standing in the original Jerusalem, in the true promised land, so the Jerusalem of Christ's day and the Apostles' day was still the true Jerusalem, and Christ was crucified in the real original spot, wherever that is. And Stephen's testimony proves that. They were standing in that spot where you now dwell. So if we can show that the promised land cannot be over there, it does not fit anything in the Bible, that it's somewhere else, then the true Jerusalem had not been destroyed before the New Testament church began and would have had to have been destroyed sometime after that perhaps 200, 300 A.D. in that area of time. And then it remained desolate for nearly 2,000 years, well, 1,500 or so from the time God allowed the Puritans to come back here. Quite an interesting scenario. Where are God's people today? I love this New Testament testimony from Stephen that the true Jerusalem is where Christ dwelt. Now, was a false one put up somewhere along then? Maybe so, but it was not the true one. There are other questions we'll get to, like, why then did Paul tour the Mediterranean? Well, some of the people of Israel were still there. They'd been taken captive by ship, as Deuteronomy promised. (coughs) And not as many of them were at Jerusalem and the Promised Land as they had been. So, who did James write to? The tribes scattered all over. Yeah, they'd been brought into northern Africa and migrated through Europe until they are where they are today. And then God allowed this area to be resettled, and now he is about to let his true people into the true promised land and restore his temple 
and the original Jerusalem in the spot, as Zechariah says, in her place, her own place. What does that mean? Why would he say it like that? Anyway, his foundation is in the holy mountains, wherever those mountains are. And he loves the gates of Zion. And he's going to bring it back so everybody knows where that is. And they're, then they're going to want to say, I was born there. That's where I was born. That's the place of God. Like Zechariah, where it says, people will begin to say, uh, my last name is Abramson. My last name is Josephson. I'm not a Jones. I'm not a this or a that, we might say today. Uh, they'll start taking the surnames of our true fathers. Well, that kind of ties in with this. Where was I born? Oh, it's Zion. What's your name? Abraham, son. Son of Abraham. And then it says, This man or, or that was born there, and the highest himself shall establish her. So God the Father and Emmanuel his son are going to bring down the new Jerusalem and establish it there. But he is going to establish his end time work there first. Where else could he? It has to emanate from true Jerusalem, wherever it might be. The Eternal shall count when he writes up the people that this man was born there. So it's not only important to the men that were born to be say, I was born at Zion. God is going to count those that are born there. Now, does that mean physically? Perhaps. Perhaps even in the few years we have left, when the temple is in construction, before the tribulation begins, when Jerusalem is in construction for nearly 70 weeks, before it is defiled, perhaps there will be some born in the true Jerusalem and Zion area once the gathering occurs. That may very well be the case. But what is the true birth? We're born of the Spirit. And many will be baptized and rebaptized, I think, in Emmanuel there. And that's where they will be, in refuge in Zion when the first resurrection occurs. So they will be born in spirit from Zion. Where else could it possibly be? In some Arab country of Jordan, Ammon and Moab? I think not. The Scripture does not bear that out. As well as the singers, as the players on instruments, shall be there. Everybody's going to be singing and rejoicing and playing instruments in glory to God in that place. All my springs are in you. The fountain of God, the river of God, will come out from under His throne. From the promised land will emanate the springs of water. Isaiah 35, the desert will bloom and the solitary places will sing and the grass will grow up to the cow belly and so on and so on as it describes what God will do in the original place. I truly believe he's going to do it here in the end time in a small way in the original spot and that it will spread worldwide in the world tomorrow, in the millennium. But right now, 
or very soon now, it will be done to show where the real spot is and show the world who God is. What an incredible blessing for you and me to understand that and know and have the opportunity to be part of it.